Hello, and welcome to the Forget Me Not pod. This is Bridget, your host, and I am going to be talking with my guest, Tani, on today's episode. Um, Tani is one of my closest friends. We met back in high school, and we ran in the same circles, which were mostly the nerdy drama kid (laughs) circles, and (laughs) we have maintained (laughs) a friendship ever since, which has been going on. A decade. Over a decade. Yeah. I graduated 10 years ago. Yeah. So So 14, 15 years. years. Yeah. Oof. Wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So now that I feel really old. um, (laughs) And today we're going to just be talking about some of the things that Tanya and I have in common and exploring um, how your identity can be impacted by things like physical health. So with that, I will pass it over to Tanny. Tanny, can you introduce yourself and kind of um, give us an idea of how you put yourself out in the world and kind of what you consider your identity to be? Yeah. Hi, I'm Tanny. Um, I am 28 years old and I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> no idea. Um, I, I don't know. I think I maintain who I am based basically on my friends. I don't really have, I'm not doing anything super impactful or dramatic with my life, at least at the moment. So I just try to find myself through my friends and my family. And Mm -hmm. Bridget here is one of those people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say you are probably not alone in being 28 and having no idea what you're doing with your life, I would yeah. estimate most of us are in that <laughs> similar realm. Yeah. Um, I would also argue that I I think that um, you do do things that are impactful. You are someone who's a really good friend and someone who's um, very valuable in my life for sure. So, um, so I think maybe you missed, missed a little in that introduction, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so in this, in this show, I'm, you know, kind of wanting to explore, not to sound too broad, but humanity, right? Like yeah. how each of us show up and what that looks like because human beings are so complex and those complexities, you know, it's just, it's impossible to summarize as, you know, you just tried to do, right? right. Like <laughs> who you are. Um, but I know that we all kind of have this image, a mental image of ourselves and who we are. And then other people also have a mental image of who we are. So um, can you share kind of like a common misconception or, or maybe one of the most contradictory misconceptions people have about you or that people have, have kind of formed about who you are? Um, so <laughs> I've been told that people, <laughs> I've been told that people thought I was a bitch before they actually knew me. Which is interesting. Um, One of my now really good friends, when we had met, she had told me that when we met, she thought I was going to be a bitch because I was, I'm fairly, I don't want to be like full of myself, but I'm fairly intelligent. And she could see that and she thought that I was going to be like really rude and condescending about it, which is interesting because I try really hard to not be rude and condescending. Um, And also, I don't think I'm overly intelligent. I just think that I am analytical and hyperanalyze everything and try to use that to an advantage. I think that's a really good insight. I would, I would agree that you are someone who takes information and processes it. Wow. Okay. Processes (laughs) it. (laughs) Um, 
and then is able to explain it to other people in a way that that makes sense, which I think is actually a very undervalued skill. Um, but I think that's interesting because I, I think that also kind of plays into the whole um, kind of stereotype of confident women, you know, coming across as being bitches or, um, yeah, so. Absolutely, yeah, self-confidence as like, yeah, totally misconstrued, absolutely. Yeah, so on that note, talking about confidence, what is something that you are really proud of yourself for, for? accomplishing or doing or whatever (laughs) I had to think about that one um because it's easy to not be proud of myself it's easy to be it's easy for one to be too hard on themselves um Mm -hmm. so I have to think about what I'm proud of myself for I guess I'm proud of myself for standing up for people um Mm. I'm constantly if anybody friends family anybody says anything that's rude or snide even if it's just like quietly to themselves or to me I'm like hey how about you don't do that you know how about you not say this this rude thing about somebody that you know nothing about because we don't know what they're going through um so even though I'm hard on myself I can I guess I'm pretty proud of the fact that I don't easily let other people be rude to other people you know what I mean yeah absolutely you're an advocate for the people in your life and I think that's definitely something to be proud of yourself for and to cherish about yourself. Thank you. <laughs> um, what would be something that you would say that you're working on right now or something that you are addressing in your life that you're maybe not where you want to be yet, but you're getting there? Yeah. Um, I am trying really hard to like and love who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's <laughs> it's so much harder than I feel like it should be. I feel like once we've made that decision, hey, I'm, I want to start liking myself, that it should just be like, okay, you're right. I do like myself. But it's, it's a much longer, harder battle. And it is a battle. It's not just a, a, a decision that we make and suddenly it's there. It's this constant fight and thought and effort that goes into it. And, you know, being... everybody was bullied growing up you know at least I assume and so like I was too and so that's everything that anybody's ever said that was mean to me I just hold on to it and I'm trying really hard to let those false thoughts and ideas go because they're not accurate they're not true but it's you know I'm trying to move past those and like who I am and I'm even keeping a journal and writing down the little quirks and things about myself that I think are cute or charming or I could envision somebody else liking those things about me. So I should like them also, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, as you know, you have frequently challenged me <laughs> to do the same yeah. and I have not <laughs> been <laughs> successful in that, but I think you brought up a, a really important point with this too, in that learning to like yourself or deciding to like yourself isn't just something that we do. It's not just something that you're like, you wake up one day and you're like, all right, you know what? Um, I'm going to go ahead and appreciate who I am. And I'm just going to embrace the good things about me because you also have to unlearn all of the hurtful things that people have put on you and the identities that you have assumed the negative ones over time. Um, I personally was not bullied. I'm very (laughs) grateful for that. Congratulations. Um, (laughs) I know. Um, (laughs) But I, I think, you know, part of that too is we grew up in very different environments. I was yeah. homeschooled and, 
you know, mm-hmm. other than my siblings, there really wasn't anyone to bully <laughs> me and I was the oldest. So right. Yeah. Um, kind of had that one taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that, you know, for me, and we'll maybe get into this a little bit more later, my identity was um, very impacted by my parents and yeah. how they projected identities onto me and um, how I've had to, you know, like myself growing up in a family that basically, um, you know, told me all the reasons why I shouldn't. And I think that a lot of times, especially in our culture now with self-love and self-care, there really is this idea that you can just magically make it happen. Like if you just do the affirmations and you you know, get up a half hour earlier to journal and not saying that these are bad things by any means or not helpful things by any means. But um, yeah, I think that it's definitely and probably a lifelong journey for a lot of us who have experienced really significant um, trauma or, you know, bullying and things like that. So um, I think the fact that you show up for yourself in those ways is really beautiful. And um, I know I'm excited to see how things progress for you over the next few years. So thank you. Also, I'd like to point out that um, bullying parents could absolutely bully their children. It doesn't have to be like mocking tones and teasing and pointing. I mean, it's anything that's hurtful, you know, that's, in fact, I would, I would even say that parents can do the most damage, even though they don't mean to parents a lot of times try to do their best, but that doesn't mean that it's for the best. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, yeah. And I hadn't thought of it that way at all because, you know, in my mind, bullying is always something I think of like, you know, children, neighborhood bully or yeah. um, The bigger kid on the block. And, but that is true. And I think that gets missed actually now that we're talking about that. And um, you know, those of us who have had adults in our lives who weren't really safe people and how they Mm -hmm. um, the ways that they chose to be in relationship with us and the ways that they, communicated their thoughts about the world and about us can really be just as harmful not more harmful than the kids who are like pointing out all your flaws right absolutely because you're supposed to be able to trust those older than you especially family members you one you we're supposed to be able to trust in them and know that we're safe with them so when those are the people that are hurting us that's detrimental to our mental health our emotional health Yeah. And you missed something in your introduction, which is that you majored in sociology. You have a degree in sociology. So you really understand these systems and these, (laughs) the way that, you know, especially the family system, which, you know, I also studied sociology in college. And I mean, we touched a little on like cultural things, but for me, at least I, the majority of my education really based on family systems and basically how much they can fuck you up. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which so I already know but, but it's, it's true <laughs> yeah yeah um okay so then my last kind of introductory question before we get into more of the topic that we're gonna explore um is how do you want to leave your mark on the world like what if you could do anything um with your life and if you could make any sort of impact that you want what would that look like for you so that you could you know not to sound morbid but die happy (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I think that for me personally I want to do little things like one-on-ones with people that help them like like for me a certain trauma that I went through was like had a huge impact on my life even you know as a kid even 
in through adulthood. And if I can reach out to people who have been through something similar and kind of, I don't want to say coach them through it, but like walk them like, hey, I survived this. You can survive this. Let's work together on how we can help you. Um, And because I didn't have anybody there for me that was able to help me through that. And I somehow still managed to make it to 28 so far. You know what I mean? So if, if I can, somebody who's younger or older, I guess it doesn't matter what age, if I can just help anybody in that way, that I could cry just thinking about that. You know, that's so important yeah. to me. And also it's, I don't know if it's silly or not, but I want to make people laugh. I mean, one of my favorite things about me is I think I'm funny. So if I can make people laugh, then it's just, it's such a warm feeling because I don't think anybody's as happy as they're when they're laughing. You know, it's just pure, it's like joy bubbling up and just escaping your body. And it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. And so if I can bring joy and laughter to people, I feel like I've done my part. I, I mean, well, you know that I love that because we laugh together for <laughs> hours. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's, there's literally studies that show that laughter has an effect on pain, which is going to be relevant to our conversation yeah. today. And, um, you know, laughter does boost dopamine and serotonin levels. And, um, you know, there's even been studies that show that if you fake smile for like five minutes a day, yeah. it will actually shift your mood. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think goes a lot to show that we do have to a degree, some influence in um, our emotions and choosing joy, even when it feels really difficult. Um, And something that came to mind when you were talking about, you know, wanting to walk with people through things is the quote from Ram Dass that says, after all, we're just walking each other home. Um, And it's from his book. That's, that's really about dying and, you know, kind of how that throughout Mm -hmm. Um, relationships and things like that but I think that it's really relevant to um, you know just sitting with people through things walking with people through things because that is we're all going to the same place right Right. like we're all eventually going to die again not to sound super morbid but um, (laughs) sharing sharing in each other's lives knowing that that's the ultimate outcome I think is is really powerful because you could be like me and try to avoid as many relationships as possible so that people don't die on you, um, (laughs) which is maybe not healthy. And I do talk to my therapist about this, but um, (laughs) yeah. Um, Thank you for sharing that. I love your insights always. And I'm excited for people to, you know, know a little bit more about the things that I already know about you, but obviously I can't just psychically inform everyone who's listening to this, who you are. So thank you for sharing. You know, that's a good point. No, I, I have not. I have not made that effort. Um, maybe next time I can come more prepared and be more psychically in tune with the radio frequencies. I don't know yeah. how that works. Yeah, we yeah. would appreciate that. All right, I'll I'll get on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's no really good segue um, to go right. from <laughs> talking about psychically transmitting things to our topic, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, yeah. So I really wanted to have this conversation with you around having chronic pain and living with a chronic illness. Um, We both have diagnoses that are chronic and that cause pain. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, it's neuropathy, which if people don't know what neuropathy is, it basically is a malfunction of your nervous system that causes uh, pain that's not really pathological. Um, 
And so for me, what that looks like is basically just um, having a lot of pain in my hands and in my arms and trying to navigate that is something that has been a pretty big challenge for the last uh, six years. Um, and then Tani, do you want to share uh, to the degree that you're comfortable with what you deal with on a daily basis as far as your pain and um, chronic illness? Yeah. So I have Crohn's disease. It's an autoimmune disease in the gut. Mine is in my small intestine. And the short of it is anytime I eat anything, I'm in pain afterwards for sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's four or five hours. I mean, it's just, it's constant. So that's rough. (laughs) Yeah. And you went through quite a long period of time waiting to get a diagnosis and then trialing different meds and then you know, having meds that had side effects that were almost as bad as the symptoms. Yeah. Um, and I know that that is exhausting. I've been through yeah. not a bunch of medications, thankfully, but a bunch of really painful tests. Cause when you sure. have neuropathy, they shock you and oh put needles God. in you <laughs> and do all these really fun things to cause pain, to try and get your brain to mm. show, you know, what is happening in your body. Um, And so I think that's actually a part of being chronically ill or having chronic pain that a lot of people don't talk about is the diagnostic procedures themselves and the management of your chronic illness can be just as debilitating as the Mm -hmm. illness itself. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So what, what has your, I mean, I know that this has been a very long journey. This is like years of Mm -hmm. um, being in pain and, and trying to figure out the root cause and all of that. And I know for myself, when I started to experience pain, which, you know, pretty much everyone in the world who is gifted with having two hands uses their hands sure. every single day, all day long, for everything. especially me. If you, if you ever get to see me talk, I talk like an Italian <laughs> and I wave my arms around, um, which is probably ironic. I don't have any Italian blood in me whatsoever. But um, <laughs> for me, that was a huge blow to my identity. I write a lot. I'm a writer and I love to cook. Um, and I love to cook from scratch. I'm one of those people who's like, excuse me, I will not buy pre-chopped onions because they (laughs) are not the same as like my freshly chopped onions. Um, and I had to adjust my, I was also barista at the time and, and I worked on a manual machine, which means that instead of pushing a button, having espresso drip out of a machine, I was actually, you know, taking my shots and tamping them and then putting the you know, the thing and the thing and pulling the shots, whatever, (laughs) which is a lot of like wrist work. Right. Um, and a lot of using your hands. And so, um, a lot of the things that I love to do and that I was used to being able to do without being impeded by any sort of physical limitations were in a, in a sense taken from me. That's how I felt. I felt like they'd been stolen from me. Um, and so along with just being in physical pain, there were, years of denial. I mean, this five stages of grief, of grief, basically, um, and trying to adjust to who I was with this more limited capacity in my hands and in my energy levels and things like that. So um, do you mind sharing how your relationship with your chronic pain and chronic illness has impacted your sense of self and your identity and any changes that it's brought about? Yeah. So I, for as long honestly, as long as I can remember, I've had stomach pain. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's always been like, I always felt like it was so before I had a diagnosis, I felt like it was so silly. I'm like, Oh, my tummy hurts, you know, like, Oh, you're fine. You know, it's a stomach ache. You're fine. 
but it's like I mean the amount of times I told my parents my stomach hurts my stomach hurts my stomach hurts they're like yeah we get it and you know it's because they hurt all the time and nobody knew what was going on there was no obvious reason for why my stomach would be hurting it even sounded like an excuse sometimes like Hey, Tanny, go unload the dishwasher. My stomach hurts. Yeah, isn't it interesting how your stomach always hurts as soon as you have to do something? And it was just this constant struggle growing up because I knew that it was real, but I can see how it would come off as an excuse or dramatic or whatever. So it's, I mean, it wasn't until I was in, after I graduated high school that I finally went to my first gastroenterologist and he did some tests on me and he, you know, he kept doing all these endless blood work. He did ultrasounds and endoscopy and a colonoscopy and all of this stuff. And he was like, yep, I have no idea what this is. Sorry, probably IBS. I was like, I'm sorry, did you just say probably and then walk out on me? I mean, um, so I'm like, if, if this specialist doesn't even know what's going on, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. It was really hard because, like I said, this pain is real. It's real to me. And it's exhausting. It is exhausting being in pain constantly and having no, you know, solution for it. Um, because pain meds never worked. Tylenol, aspirin, none of that. It just, none of it touched it. And so I just, anyway, it was really long lasting. And um, I tried thinking, okay, maybe I'm lactose intolerant. Maybe I have celiac disease. I went on all these different diets, removing all dairy and removing all wheat and gluten and a low FODMAP diet and just all of these things and nothing. I mean, some of them helped a little bit just because I just wasn't eating as much because everything has milk in it and everything has wheat in it. Um, But it's just nothing was working. Um, And then finally I had... (laughs) I ended up going to the ER because I was in so much pain. I couldn't breathe. I was seeing stars and I was crying. Like it was awful. Um, And then that was actually a godsend, even though it didn't feel like it at the time, because then I got to a GI doctor who did more tests and he actually found out and discovered that I have Crohn's disease. Um, But it took, I'm actually in two weeks, I have my fifth colonoscopy coming up. (laughs) Um, So exciting. So exciting. exciting. I can't wait. Um, (laughs) but it's you know it was I could have cried after getting a diagnosis because I'm like all right finally thank god I've got an actual diagnosis now I can work on this thing instead of having a whole world of issues that it could have potentially been you know what I mean um so but anyway yes so I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease and uh and even though I'm on treatment now um which doesn't seem to be helping, which is a whole nother issue. Um, We still have to keep up with the scopes to make sure if it's getting better or worse or maintaining. And it's hard not to feel like this is just who I am now. It's hard not to Mm -hmm. feel like, okay, I'm Tani and I have Crohn's, you know, it's become, it's, I mean, it's like, hi, it's like my name, my age, my diagnosis, because that's all I can focus on is no matter what I do, where I'm going, who I'm with, it's always pain is there with me. And logically, I know that pain, that's not who I am. Obviously, I'm not that's not who I am. But it's it's it feels like it. Sorry, that was very long winded. (laughs) No, I, I don't think it was long winded at all. I think that it really speaks to a lot of things that most people who experience chronic illness probably feel one, the invalidation of pain, right? Like when you when you have a broken bone, which I can tell you all about, um, (laughs) been there, done that. Um, 
it's obvious, right? Like people can see, you know, I have scars on my legs from having my femurs repaired Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a proof that this thing happened to me, right? Like it's a way that I can almost, you know, validate to myself, okay, I had this horrible and I, you know, experienced this pain and it's something that I can document and it's something that doctors can understand. I had a bilateral femur repair, like they get that, right? But Mm -hmm. Advocating for myself in the medical system, experiencing neuropathy was far more challenging. And most doctors were um, less than empathetic and um, were very focused on the fact that I have a history of trauma. And so because I had a history of psychological trauma, therefore my pain must be a manifestation. Um, And I had two occasions with two doctors. Both of them were white males. Um, And the first one, I know, of course, is white men. (laughs) Uh, The first doctor, he was a, um, uh, uh, wow, okay, brain function, ironically, (laughs) because I'm trying to remember the name for a specialist. It was a brain doctor. Um, Beautiful. Neurologist. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. He's a neurologist. And he was the first neurologist that I saw. And I was explaining to him that my hands had gotten weak. Like they, they just were not like, I struggle with fine motor skills. I struggle with, you know, I was talking about chopping onions and, and the reason I, that came to mind is because that's one of the things I struggle with the most is being able to chop something with a, with a knife, um, buckling my kids' car seats, you know, things like that are very challenging. Oh, yeah. And so I was explaining to him, you know, my hands are weak and he got super agitated and he was like, well, true weakness is if I held a gun to your hand, to your head and told you to pick something up and you wouldn't, weren't able to do it. And that one, that's so totally, <laughs> it's so inappropriate. Like a doc, a doctor should not be, you know, mentioning violence as a way of compliance, first of all. Um, but second of all, my later on, my weakness was actually documented because I did a grip strength test and I had a grip strength of four, which is less than a child's grip strength. Oh, sure. um, and he never, you know, examined those sorts of things. He was just very... I apparently focused on the fact that he couldn't hold a gun to my head and order me to pick something up to test whether or not it was true weakness. Um, and then the, the second doctor that really made kind of a negative impact was a pain management specialist that I went to see. And I was explaining to him, you know, look, I can't function. Like I need a way to manage this pain because it is too much. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, well, you're young and I have all the belief that this is just going to go away for you. Oh my goodness. And, I, I was really taken aback. I was like, well, that's nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't even know what to say because I was like, that doesn't help me manage it right now. Like, when is it going to go away when I'm 30, when I'm 40? Is it, you know, what if I'm 65 years old and still in pain? Like, I need to manage it. Um, yeah. And thankfully, through a series of unfortunate events, essentially, things shook out to where I was able to get on the meds that have been helping and, um, you know, had some great doctors that advocated for me. And, you know, I'm definitely been in a, in a better place over the last couple of years, but that feeling of powerlessness, when you're trying to explain something that's invisible, trying to advocate yourself while you're in pain and having the people that you should be able to trust to help you mm-hmm. dismissing not only the reality of what you're experiencing, but also your feelings about what you're experiencing. Um, it's really, really hard. And then the other piece of starting to identify with your diagnosis or with your pain, um, 
and having that be a core part of who you are, you know, it's almost like in AA, right? Like you introduce yourself, Hey, I'm Bridget. I am an alcoholic and I have X amount of time, you know, clean or whatever. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does feel like that. Like when people invite me out to go out and do things, uh, there's a part of me that's like, you know what? I'm Bridget. I have neuropathy and I can't, (laughs) it hurts too much. The thought of having to go out is exhausting. Um, And you want to feel normal. You want to be able to feel like, oh yeah, I can just go out and do whatever with everyone else and have fun. But my body has these limitations and how do I separate myself from feeling like I have to take on all of this baggage that comes with this diagnosis and also have the things that I want. Um, So can you speak a little bit to how you have been working through that and looking at that as a part of your life and continuing to find things that you enjoy and embracing the things that you can do even when you're not feeling well? Yeah. So, I mean, I can try. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Yes. Um, it's, it's hard. Sorry, my mind just went blank, which is like really convenient timing. Ask me those questions again, please. Absolutely. Can you talk to how you have been able to find things, activities, um, hobbies, et cetera, ways to live your life without letting this define you is really what I was trying to say. And I said it with a lot more words. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, it's, I just have to plan around when I know I'm going to be in pain. And it's, it's mm. really a guessing game because sometimes the pain is there even when I haven't had anything mm-hmm. to eat. It's just random. Um, but it's just... I have to schedule my hangouts. Like I can't do it in the evening because by the evening I'm going to be in so much pain. I'm just going to need to sleep. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's hang out in the morning and I just won't eat until lunch because I'll get sick afterwards. And it's not fun to be like, hey, guys, yeah, let's hang out. By the way, I'm sick now. Does anybody have a bedroom that I can nap in? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So it's just it's honestly just shifting my human habits with functions and honestly what that means is I just don't go out I don't Mm -hmm. hang out with people hardly ever and if I do it's at their house so I have some place to you know recover if I need to um and honestly you know what it's fine because I'm really not I am such an introvert at heart that it's it's okay (laughs) that I'm not going out you know (laughs) I know that you're an extrovert so we're very people in that manner (laughs) um this is maybe not the best example (laughs) (laughs) but it's yeah, it's it's just trying to adjust and years of dealing with these cycles, it gives me a little bit better, like a little bit of an advantage knowing, okay, well, this is going to make me sick, so I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I think that speaks too to self-care um, and not the, you know, cushy kind of self-care that right. we like to talk about, you know, bubble baths and things like that. <laughs> Which are great. I mean, I I love a bubble bath. Um, Sure. (laughs) But I think that's something that is, for me at least, a lot of times self-care with chronic pain can feel like a burden. Um, Yes. Yes. Where it's like, oh, I have to be able to take my meds at this time. And so I need to be able to remember to bring my meds with me. There is nothing sexier than going on a date and Mm -hmm. it's 7 p.m. and I have to take my pain meds. Yeah. And I have to reach into my purse and pull out my pain. It's going to be super classy here for a second and pop a couple pills. Um, mm. 
And I've had to learn to just be okay with that because despite the uncomfortability, care of myself but I think I don't know if you've had the same experience but I've been working really hard to reframe self-care as a necessary thing to be I mean it is necessary but instead of looking at it as this thing that's such a burden that I have to do because I'm in pain Mm -hmm. it's like okay I want to take care of my body so that I can do these things to the best of my ability and if I look at these self-care items as ways to kind of give myself some love so that I can go out and do the things that I love, then it doesn't have to be something where I'm sharing my identity with my diagnosis. I don't know if that made any sense at all. Okay. So talking kind of uh, along those same lines, we have had a lot of conversations about very existential topics. Um, Mm -hmm. We share a faith um, and in that faith, you know, there is some expectation for life to have some sort of meaning for it to have some purpose. And it's not just something that happened by accident. We're all existing on a planet until it burns up and melts and floods all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you, global warming. (laughs) And I know that for me, my faith has been really challenged by a lot of the things I've had to experience pain being a really big part of that, because, you know, I grew up in a culture where if you were mentally ill or had pain, it was because you didn't have enough Jesus in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still carry a lot of that baggage of I'm in pain because I didn't pray enough. I'm in pain because, you know, I had sex, um, you know, like my brain rationalizes right. these things as sins that therefore I am paying the price for. Um, Which is so not how that works. Cause the price is already, right. I know that's, that's a very valid thought and feeling, but as an outside perspective, that's not on you. That wasn't for you to atone for sins. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that that has been a journey for me is working through, okay, what does it actually mean for me to have this faith? What does it mean for me to live it out? Um, I'm, I refer to myself as an optimistic nihilist because (laughs) I fluctuate between, you know, life is completely pointless and wanting it to have this grand meaning, this, you know, this great meaning. Um, And then on a smaller scale, my life, you know, feeling the same way. So I would love to hear from you how this chronic pain has impacted your beliefs about what your purpose is in the world and what the point of life is. Sure. So now not to sound like a sap, but I really believe that the meaning of life is love and not just romantic love, but familial love and um, the love of watching the ocean and the love of reading your favorite book and the love of your favorite dessert. Just anything that brings you joy and happiness, I feel like is a symptom, I guess, of love. And I think that we're here to experience that on our own. And now relating that to chronic pain, I have often wondered, will I ever find somebody who will be able to put up with and be willing to deal with me and my pain? Oh, she's sick again, but I still love her. Or I, you know, I'm, it's, 
we have to go to the doctor again. You know, not somebody who's not going to get tired of all of the all of all of my health issues. And even though I am not my pain, my pain is part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've definitely thought about that before, but it doesn't impede my ability to love reading, cuddled up in a blanket, and you know, cuddling into you know fresh sheets with freshly shaven legs. I mean, the little things that like bring us happiness. Um, I can still experience those things despite the chronic pain and really, I think, get get to feel these human feelings. Mm. I love the way you put that to get to feel these human feelings. Thank you. You are much better at feeling feelings than I am. Um, I feel a lot of feelings. <laughs> yeah. I feel a lot of feelings, but then I reject them and (laughs) shove them down as you know because you've been there when I'm like you know what I'm just not gonna feel this right now right (laughs) and then you've also been there when I was like you know crying so hard that's not was coming into my mouth from my nose but yeah regardless um I think I don't know that I just love the way that you put that that for you even though you are having this experience of living in a body that has a lot of pain that you look at being human as as beyond that and this is a part of that journey but it definitely isn't um the journey and I think that's something I personally really struggle with is where where does my pain fit into my purpose where does this you know I have a very specific idea of what I want my life to look like and or did had a very specific idea um (laughs) and nothing turned out the way that I had anticipated at all like not even to a degree and for me I think the pain is the part that's the easiest to be angry at because it's been the most consistent um Mm -hmm. a lot of the other things you know they've had their peaks and then they've they've kind of you know gone down and then some of them have peaked again and then it's gone back down and there's more fluctuation with it and while I have fluctuations in my pain. It is a constant and it's something I have to address constantly. And um, I think that I struggle to look at it as something that I can exist with it, to be honest, like there's almost this battle where I'm like, no, I just need to be healthy. I need this to be gone. And the acceptance of it just hasn't come yet. I'm still in that cycle of the other four stages of grief (laughs) and that one I'm not there yet um so to me it's really beautiful and helpful to hear you say like you know I mean yes is there really a better feeling than having freshly shaven legs on clean sheets with a good (laughs) book I mean if you're a woman if you're a guy that's probably a little weird no that's fine Um, shave your legs you'll you'll love it (laughs) but that feeling yes like and I I used to be someone oh look at me waxing nostalgic I used to be someone I did. I used to be someone who was annoyingly um, not happy, but I, I found joy in everything mm-hmm. and really enjoyed everything. And I'm probably the person who you want with you in your worst case scenario, because I don't ever look at anything as a worst case scenario yeah. when I'm with someone else. Like if it's about right. someone else, I can totally put that off if it's me yes 100 percent. world is ending it's over it's done life is pointless whatever yeah but when I'm with someone else it's different and I I remember as a teenager 
having some experiences with someone who was going through a really hard time. And, you know, I was always a little bit confused by why some of the things were such a big deal when I was like, but there's so much good to still be found in the world. And over time that has eroded a lot. And I have realized I miss that feeling of just being in the moment and enjoying the moment as it is without having to make it into something else. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like a big part of that has been pain because I've been wanting to change the pain for so long that any moment that I'm in, there's almost this anxiety of, well, what if my hands start to hurt? You know, what if I get that agonizing ache and I can't turn it off and I'm just, you know, you know, people will see me, I rub my arms like nonstop and I'm like constantly putting pressure on my wrist and and it's, it bothers me because I'm like, what do people think I'm weird? Like I'm sitting here like massaging (laughs) my own arms like a weirdo. Um, And it, it takes away. And so it's a good reminder for me to stop and be like, you know what, I can find things where I can just sit moment and absorb that moment. Like, I feel like that's the point of luxury. Like luxury isn't necessarily meant to be fine, expensive things. It's really meant to be a moment where you can absorb the beauty of the moment that you're in. And for some of us, that does mean shopping too much in Nordstrom, but for others of us, <laughs> it's, you know, a sunset on the beach. So, and right. for me, it's both. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I can really relate to what you're saying, though, about um, when is the pain going to start? Because it's the pain, the thing about chronic pain is it truly is chronic. It's not just the moments when you're experiencing the pain, but it's the moments when you aren't experiencing pain. And you're like, when is it going to start? When's it going to happen? I need to be prepared. I need to have pain pills with me just in case. I need to have this prepared just in case. Are they going to notice that I'm in pain? Do I have to explain why I am in pain? It's just this, there is not a moment where this does not affect every aspect of my life. And that is what is so exhausting about it. So anyway, I just, I can really relate to what you're saying about, you know, the the, the anxieties of it, even when you're not in the pain itself. Yeah. And that's, and that feeds into, you know, people with chronic illnesses are more likely to develop if they don't already have pre-existing depression, anxiety, uh, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I know for me, my, both my depression and anxiety predated my chronic pain, but it, exacerbated my anxiety for sure. My depression, not so much really. Um, but my anxiety so much because it was constantly, you know, am I going to drop this? Am I going to be able to cook dinner? Do I, you know, how do I prepare to have a day where like I have to be in bed all day long because I'm too tired to move. Um, and I have kids. And so when you have children who depend on you for everything, cause both my kids are sure. really young still. Um, it's like, am I a bad mother because I ordered dinner because I couldn't make dinner? Am I a bad, you know, when I had a partner, am I a bad partner because I need to go to bed early tonight and I can't stay up and spend quality time with my partner? And um, yeah, it really does just become this constant um, dialogue in your head of how do I exist? <laughs> how right. do I do this? Um and I don't know. I don't know if it ever becomes something where you aren't in that place. And maybe we just have to really enjoy the moments where we forget for a minute, you know, to be anxious about it and to um, not have that pain for however long that lasts. Yeah. 
and kind of on that note and in the similar vein of like how does it impact you know your belief about the meaning of life and also I want to come back to what you said about the part but how have you experienced shifts in your faith or your faith growing stronger or you know challenging beliefs that you might have had where chronic pain plays a part in your life um, while also living out this this faith and in this belief system so I just I mean it all boils down to I trust what God has planned I just do Mm. and that doesn't mean that I don't question it or I don't get frustrated sometimes because it's hard not to be like super dramatic and be like, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this your plan for me? Um, which I don't have those thoughts often. Usually it's after I have like a few days of no pain and I'm like, finally I'm in the recovery stage. And then like it hits super hard and I'm like, what the hell? What, why, why, you know? And it's, so those are really hard days, but overall, I trust that for whatever reason, whatever God's plan is, it is a plan and he's got it. And if I'm miserable all the time, because there's going to be somebody who's also miserable, but doesn't have a support system and I can support them and be there for them. That's fine. You know, cause mm-hmm. I, I do have a really good support system now, not for a long time, but now that I've got now that I've got a really good doctor and my family understands more of what's going on internally I, and my friends, I mean, like you, like we don't have the same kind of pain, but we're both in pain so often that we're like, I'll just message you, message you and be like, dude, this fucking sucks. And you'll be like, yeah. yeah. And then we can just, we can just be there for each other. Just knowing that it sucks sometimes. Speaking of, I feel like it's important that people know that our primary mode of conversation is sending each other dark memes. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't send each other lovey checking in texts. We just send each other all the dark yeah. and sad memes. <laughs> and just know that we're terrible <laughs> human beings together, and then it's okay. Yes, exactly. Again, I think this kind of goes back to the whole idea of, like, walking each other home. We're yeah. all learning how to do life, and for some of us, maybe that does look like living out the harder parts of life so that we can walk alongside someone else. And I struggle with that. Honestly, I really struggle with, especially with my trauma aside from my pain. And I know, you know, you've had a, had similar thoughts about this. Like why does it have to happen to us? Like right. why does it have to be that the bad things happen? Why can't we just all live lives that are free from trauma? And I think that's where I get really stuck is like, what, what is the point of living in this pain? And I don't have the answers, right? Like I don't have an answer. And I think that a lot of times me just asking the question and giving myself permission to have feelings about the fact that I don't have an answer has been important for me and my healing process. Um, But yeah, I think that I have to kind of be okay with the fact that maybe it is part of walking someone else home. And I can resent that, right? Like I can be upset that I, anyone has to experience pain, but if I realize that I don't have any control over it at all, and I have no control over whether or not it has purpose, right? What do I do with it? You know, what do I do with it with the pain? And I, if I'm just going to hold on to it myself and be bitter and miserable that I'm in pain, that doesn't serve anyone. So, right. Well, sometimes I think about how 
you know, like for me, I'm just, just such a control freak that I'm like, I need to know what's happening, why it's happening and when it's happening. And God just doesn't work like that. He doesn't give us all the ins and outs of what his plans are. And so sometimes I think, gee, it sure would be nice if I knew why I'm in pain all the time. But then at the same time, I think if he sat me down, he was like, all right, here's the reason. I'd probably try to change his mind. I'd probably try to be like, <laughs> right, but hear me out. What if we did it this way instead? Right. Right. Yes. And I just feel like God's not the bartering type. He's not going to be like, well, you know what? You have a really good point, you know, and just change his entire right. scheme because I'm not happy with what he chose. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. And I think too, something that I forget often is equal and opposing forces. Like if there is a good God, there is an equal and opposing force to that. And um, whether you call him Satan or the enemy or just the asshole that fucks everything up, like Steve, there, Steve, Steve. Yeah. Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then sometimes I have to remember that there is a gray area where maybe this isn't something that has a purpose. Maybe it really is something that is just happening because I live in a broken world and there has to be something better coming. And that's almost where I, that's, that's the hard part for me is like, that's scary. It's really scary for me to believe that there's something that comes after this earth. That's good because there has been so little good in my life that has lasted and been reliable and been something that I can count on. And so I would rather find the purposes for the things that happen in my life here and now. So that at least I feel like, okay, if there's nothing after this life, at least I lived this one well. Mm-hmm. And when you have trauma and you have pain and you see people die and you, you know, experience these horrific things, I think it challenges the very core of that belief that if I can just have a good life on this earth, it will be worth it. And maybe it's supposed to, I mean, it's like C.S. Lewis said, if, if the, I'm going to butcher this quote, but basically <laughs> if, if this world does not satisfy us, it's because there's another one waiting, you know? Um, yeah. I like that. I don't know. He's a pretty wise guy or whatever. <laughs> most, most famous, like non-theologian, theologian, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, whatever. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, it makes sense to be a little bit apprehensive about another life a better life when here on earth anything can happen and anything does happen so it's anytime we get it's not going to stay good forever so inevitably if there's a good there's going to be a fall afterwards so we start to get this in our brains oh this is so good it's going to end so if we go into the belief the the idea that after this life is so good and so joyous that it'll bring tears to our eyes then it's like we can't help but think oh but when's it going to end and it can be scary Yeah. Yes, definitely. I think the infinite is something that's so beyond our consciousness that it really does um, challenge how we show up and and like, and I, I truly am to a degree, very envious of people who still believe in the traditional heaven and hell, because it must be really nice to have absolutes about what you believe. And I don't any longer believe in an absolute heaven and an absolute hell. And for me, that has been very disorienting because I, 
I don't know. <laughs> I can't <Right>. say like, <laughs> oh yeah, all sinners are going to burn up in this fiery hell and all people who are good and believe in God are going to go to this magical place called heaven right. because I don't know. I don't know. So, right. well, we can't ask anybody who does know. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, hello. Can I call A.W. Tozer, please? Um, right. <laughs> probably not. Yeah. So yeah. I just said, yeah, so yeah, so many times. And I yes. can tell I've been saying um this whole time. And my English teachers from high school, if they ever listened to this, would kill me. But it's fine. Um, it makes me feel better. I didn't there even I go again. And then she says, Great. um. <laughs> Perfect. And then she says, um. Yeah. The number of times I got scolded for saying, um, giving speeches in high school, guys. I <laughs> uh, don't know why I decided to start a podcast. But with that, I want to circle back w- really quickly to, to one yeah. thing that you said um, before we kind of wrap this up. And that was about finding a partner um, who is willing and emotionally capable and all of the things to sit with you through this experience of living with pain and what that would look like. Um, So, yeah. So I, I know it's possible. I have friends who have pretty severe health issues and they still, they have, they're wonderful people. So of course they have a partner who loves them dearly and that can recognize that in other people. But again, we're so hard on ourselves. It's I'm like, but are they going to love me despite my health issues or worse? They'll love me because of my winning personality at first, but get tired of me really soon Mm -hmm. because of my health issues. Yes. And I, I mean, I don't think I have that same fear quite to a degree for me. It's very much my mental health. Like, I feel like it's still very challenging to imagine meeting someone who's willing to sit with me through anxiety and depression and, and the things that come with having PTSD and stuff like that. With my chronic pain though, there's always this fear of like, what if I limit them? Like, what if I put too much on them because, you know, I struggle with functioning in these certain ways and exactly that same thing. Like, what if they get burned out on me and I know I follow some like people on Instagram who are disabled and who talk a lot about like dating while disabled and stuff like that I know this is a a pretty common anxiety around like having a chronic illness or disability and and wondering if someone can love you enough to um stick with you through the whole thing yeah and yeah I mean I don't have like any significant wisdom to share about it but I think (laughs) that it is an area of complete trust like you have to give the other person the benefit of the doubt and sometimes that does result in being hurt I can attest to that (laughs) but I am learning that and learning have not put into practice that if I (laughs) do not shut everyone out and keep people at as much of a distance as possible there is a chance that someone could prove me wrong yeah and be good and stick around and love me for who I am. And it's such a risk, but I think it will come with such reward, like when the time comes. Um, And yeah, I mean, I know we talk all the time about our lack of love lives and (laughs) our hopes and dreams for the other person and then the bridesmaid speeches that we already have planned to write for the other person. Um, (laughs) And so I, I don't know. I think that that's just a really beautiful place to, find some tension because a lot of the things with chronic pain, there is some sort of linear progression, right? Like trying therapies and 
being in remission or, you know, relapsing with the pain and relationships are one of those things where you can't plan them out. Like you, you can't. And there really is, I think something beautiful in finding that sort of love of someone who can acknowledge, okay, yeah, this may not be exactly what I pictured or, you know, maybe there's going to be some caretaking involved in this, but that's okay because I love you and I want to be a part of your life. And then, you know, you just have to not be a me and run away because feelings are hard. Right. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And it's hard. Part of the part of the problem or the struggle, I guess, of finding a potential partner is it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning with with pain and our identity. And now I found this person and they're great and I like them and they like me. When do I tell them about my chronic health issues? Do I wait until after they're involved and pull a 180 and be like, hey, you still want to be with me? Or do you tell them at the beginning, be like, hi, I'm Tanny, I'm 28 and I have Crohn's disease. Is that too much information at first? I mean, is that part of who I am? I mean, it's just this constant struggle and it just, it really envelops all aspects of life. Yeah. And I think that that is a really powerful thing about all relationships and all aspects of us, not just chronic pain, is trying to figure out that dance of how much vulnerability can I give someone and how much can I, you know, kind of hold back until I know you're a safe person, but still feel like I'm being authentic and integrous in this relationship. And this has nothing to do with chronic pain, but I'm a single mom and I've tried dating multiple times. And one of the most challenging things about dating as a single mom is when do I tell someone about my kids? Right. And I have tried every single way of doing this and it does not matter. Someone is going to be upset with the way that you handle it. So I think that when we are forming our identities and forming these putting these pieces of ourselves back together. Cause that's really what I feel like identity is, is it's we, not that we start out as fractured people, but we kind of start out as like, you know, when you make a Play-Doh creation mm-hmm. granted for most of us, that's probably been years and years and years. Um, yeah, definitely not last Monday. Well, no. that'd be weird. <laughs> but when you're, when you're making Play-Doh, it's so soft and formable and you can pull pieces off and you can stick pieces on and it's a very smooth process to create something out of Play-Doh. And I think in a lot of ways, our identities are kind of like that. Like we start out very, I mean, we start out as babies with absolutely no identity. I mean, to a degree, we have gender identities and things that are societally put upon us from childhood. But in terms of like knowing who we are, knowing our likes and dislikes and things like that, we don't start to pull those pieces onto us until later when we become cognitive of ourselves as a human being not going to go into developmental psychology, but (laughs) essentially the point being, we can pick some of that Play-Doh off sometimes and discard it and replace it with something else, but we still appear to be this kind of synchronous and solid thing. Yeah. A a constant, even as we're slowly changing and building pieces and removing pieces and et cetera. Um, And yeah, I just was thinking about that with what you were saying about, um, you know, owning our identity as pain and how do we in relationships, how do we say, this is who I am, but these are also the things that come with me right? without it feeling like baggage. 
exactly. Any thoughts? Any thoughts on that? Uh, just that it's a struggle. <laughs> I I haven't figured out a way to to integrate that into a conversation because I mean it's like uh, I don't know. It's it's I mean like it's a really good example about your kids. Like, hey, I'm a mom. That's a matter of fact, and my kids are a huge part of my life, but they are not my entire. That's not what my life is. It's not being a mom is not my only identity, but it is a huge part of your identity. So when do you bring that up? Is it right away and you can risk scaring them off right away or hope they'll stick around and the bar is so low that then when they're okay with you having kids, they seem like a fucking dreamboat. I mean, or is it, do you wait and then risk getting attached and getting them attached to you? And it's just, it's, there's no perfect answer. And, and especially whenever you can't control other people's thoughts and actions. So there's, I don't know. There's, I don't think there's a set answer for anybody. I think that that's a super good point too about, you know, the chronic pain children, whatever comes up where we can't anticipate as much as we try to, and we can't control as much as we may try to people's reactions and their own capacity. And something I've had to really, 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 really focus on and embrace is I can't make someone have the capacity to love me the way that I want to be loved. And if they don't have that capacity, the kindest thing I can do for myself and for them is to let them not be in my life. Yeah. And I think that's hard because I know for me, and I don't want to speak for you, but for me, I tend to personalize it. Like if someone doesn't have the capacity to love me the way that I need to be loved, then I'm like, okay, well, it's because I'm unlovable. Right. And working to separate all of these things that have baggage and have burdens and have stigma associated with them, pain, mental illness, having children, being a single mom, all of these things that I am like, oh, I wish I didn't have to carry this baggage. And and instead being like, okay, if someone doesn't have the hands to carry this, that's okay. It's mm-hmm. not going to change my value. Right. Because I have some of these extra heavy things. It just means I need a fucking strong man. Like, yeah, <laughs> going to have to be a bodybuilder or something. Like, I, that, please don't be a bodybuilder. I'm, right. Yeah. <laughs> anyways. Um, so, yeah. I. But it is hard because a lot of our identities, and this is going back to psychology, are formed in the ways that other people treat us. And that is unavoidable. Um, yeah. You know, going way back to the beginning, we did talk about having parents who... Um, you know, we've both had experiences with having parents who we love very much and who Mm -hmm. love us in the best ways that they can, um, who have said some things that have stayed in our brains and really shaped the way that we believe things to be true or good about ourselves. And then when those things are compounded by other people, it just becomes that stuck point, um, and learning to walk away from having that be a defining point of us is challenging for sure. Yeah. Well, and I think part of going back to, to, you know, what's our purpose with this and, and leaving our mark on the world and friends and all of that. It both, it sucks that you and I both have this pain that we deal with, but we have each other and we can also recognize that you, 
you're saying these things like how how is this person going to find me lovable despite my pain and I'm like shut the fuck up you're you're lovable you're wonderful right. you're all of these good things <laughs> and even though you can't see it and you do the same for me I'm harshing on myself and you're like knock it off right so yeah we can recognize that this other person that I love dearly it deals with these issues but is so very lovable perhaps I myself with these issues can also be very lovable and it's through loving other people that we can learn to love ourselves I just felt like that was a mic drop moment that was so it was that was so good I'm gonna have to find the mic drop sound effect we are not good at meeting people where they're at and saying okay I see this pain I see these things that you don't love about yourself look at these other things and let's start there and I'm gonna love you as you are And then when we can admit to loving someone as they are, it just opens those doors where all the ugly things in us, we're like, oh, okay, well, maybe if I can love this person and acknowledge their pain and their ugliness, I can also do the same for myself. Right. Um, Which is why support groups are amazing and important and highly recommend. Don't personally (laughs) attend being hypocrite here, but (laughs) they are empirically proven to make a huge difference in people's recovery. So. Join a support group if you have not already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, as we're wrapping up, where do you find hope? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, just going back to God's plan, knowing that I put my hope in him. I've just, I certainly don't have control of any of this stuff. I have no idea what I'm doing. So I just, I have hope for the future through God, knowing that he's got my back no matter what. And that everything that I've learned through is not purposeless. It is, there's a very good reason for everything that I'm experiencing, even if I can't see it, just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Yeah. Um, What's that quote for faith is, or is it faith is a substance of things hoped for evidence of things not seen. Fever is something. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. That works for me. (laughs) Um, I think that's really beautiful. I, I think in this sort of a scenario, hope, where do I find my hope? I don't know. I mean, yeah, obviously like my faith, I have, I find most of my hope in my faith, but you know, I do actually have a lot of hope in, in modern medicine and I hold out in a belief that in my lifetime, there will be neurologists who are able to figure out how to isolate uh, chronic neuropathic pain and um, annihilate it. Cause that'd be cool. Yeah. Annihilate was, was a really strong word, but no, I like it. Yeah. Annihilate. <laughs> get it, get it out of here. Completely gone. <laughs> There's nothing left at yeah. all. <laughs> oh man. Well, I find hope in friends also and, and yeah. other people even who aren't friends yet that are also going through pain, knowing that, other people have Crohn's disease and they're on a treatment that is working for them. Yeah. Well, that's fucking awesome. I hope that I also can be at that point sometime in my life. And then I can give that hope to somebody else who hasn't quite found something that works for them. I think hope is contagious. It is. And you know, it's so, I haven't said this before, but I work as a substance use. Well, you spoke as a substance use counselor and I work as a substance use case manager, but you know, in, in the program, the 12 step program, um, the big thing is, is sharing your experience, strength, and hope. And 
what that looks like for, you know, the recovering alcoholic addict is the person shares, you know, this is where I was, this is what I got out of it. And, you know, this is what I have to continue to look forward to. And the reason why the 12 step program has been so successful in helping people to stay sober is in my opinion, um, the fact that when you're in healthy meeting spaces, that's what people are focused on is let's share our pain. Let's share in the ugliest parts of ourselves and then let's show up for each other and let's show up for ourselves. And let's just keep believing that even if we don't feel it right now, at some point in the future, we are going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and I know for me during this journey, living with pain, okay is great. Like if I can just get to a place where I can be like, I'm okay. Yep. <laughs> I am not in excruciating pain. I am not, you know, fantasizing about like having my arms removed. Like right. that for me is a win. And I think for some of us, it gets tempting to make it bigger instead of just being like, you know what, if I can just be okay, then once I'm okay, maybe I can look further in the future, but I want to be completely recovered. I want to have no pain at all. Yeah, ever. Sure. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> you never know. Done, done some damage and uh, you know, it's fine. But yeah, I, I don't know where I was going with that. I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> hope. Hope. Oh yeah. And the 12 step program and experience strength and hope. Hope is contagious. Um, and there is evidence that being happy can help healing. If anyone ever wants to watch the documentary, it's literally called happy. And it's a documentary about different ways that happiness impacts people's overall well-being. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Probably find it out there on Amazon or something like that. <laughs> it was very specific. Okay. So we have covered a lot of in the last mm-hmm. hour. Is there anything else that you have on your mind? Anything else you wanted to go back to or just some closing words? Um. I will just say to anybody who's dealing with chronic pain, it is going to be okay. Even if it doesn't become great, it will be okay. You'll be okay. It sucks, but there are other people who are going through hard stuff too. And if we can just get through this together, we're still getting through it. Amen. It sucks, but you don't have to suck alone. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I could have said that. We're 12, it's fine. All right. (laughs) Okay, well, Tani, I have to say thank you for being willing to come on here and be vulnerable and talk about things that are not easy to talk about and um, share your wisdom. I really appreciate your wisdom and insights every time we have conversations that revolve around me um, (laughs) (laughs) because you're like my personal guru. Um, and I'm glad that other people got to hear from you. And I think that just by sharing with me today, other people's lives will be impacted. So thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm glad I got to be here. <laughs> yes. Us virtually conversing on my phone is fantastic. Hey, it counts. It does. It absolutely does. Um, and on that note, I am going to close by saying to please share this and like the Instagram page for get me not pod. Um, and yeah, if you have any questions for me or Tani, feel free to send them in via message on Instagram and I will get back to you. Thanks so much.